Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the Manchester Vineyard Podcast. I'm Andy, one of the pastors at Manchester Vineyard Community Church in Manchester's beautiful historic North End. And this week on the podcast, we're continuing our current series entitled Ready for Your War, Spiritual Battle in the Everyday. We're taking the first few weeks of the beginning of this series to set the table, so to speak, and define what this battle is about, who's involved, and where we fit into God's kingdom purposes. Today, we'll take a look at our chief enemy and seek to understand his origin and what his ultimate design for humans is and why he is hell-bent on wreaking havoc in our lives. So buckle up. We're going to potentially rattle some cages, upset some apple carts, and explore this enemy we know as the serpent. Thanks for listening. And when you're done, we'd love to hear from you. Take a moment to drop us a line at amen at manchestervineyard.com. Enjoy. Whenever you join a cause, whenever you join a fight, there is this sort of getting ready and engage and learn, and getting ready and fail and learn some more, and getting ready and win a victory, and then reset and getting ready. And these are little battles and skirmishes that happen along the way that are all part of the bigger war that's going on. And, um, you know, one of the great comparisons that we always look back to this side of World War II are those great battles in Europe that occurred or those great battles that happened in the South Pacific that occurred and the forces that were the good guys, right? We would, we would say the good guys uh, began to win some, some battles and push the enemies uh, of democracy back. And, of course, it provides a great metaphor for us because we see the opposing forces in that war. Does anyone see them as good? I mean, I don't, but someone might. You might be in this room, but if you do, you might want to check, recheck that. Uh, but there's some, there were some evil guys that wanted to do some evil things and wanted to put a lot of people under oppression and wanted to squash liberty and, and, uh, and freedom in the earth. And they wanted to be totalitarian over everybody. And the gospel is against that. The gospel is against that kind of, that kind of, uh, uh, of cultural situation, political situation, national situation. The gospel resists all of that. And it goes forth not just as a passive resistor. And this is where I think a lot of Christians miss the point of the gospel. Jesus said, to what? Go, right? Go into where? All the earth, right? Go into all the earth, not sit passively and idly by. And so what we do is when we go into all the earth, we naturally encounter resistance. We encounter opposing views. We encounter opposing ideas. And so what I hope is that this series will help us to be a bit more prepared for what we're going to encounter this year. And of course, this decided to bug out right when I got to where I wanted to go for it. So I'll just use this. And being ready for your war, part of that is knowing your enemy. Part of that is knowing your enemy. I don't know why it's skipping forward now, but definitely I don't want to be on that slide. All right. Knowing your enemy. And this is really a part one of a two-part where we're going to study our enemy and get to know what he's about and what his goals, purposes, and reasoning is for what he does. And perhaps some of, we'll talk about a little bit how he does it. And um, uh, the, 
I should have a slide in there that doesn't look like... Yes, okay, good. This, this is uh, from Sun Tzu. Who's read The Art of War? Yeah, right. Preaching the Bible on a Sunday, go to Sun Tzu. Of course you would. Why, why not? Why wouldn't you do that? No, there's wisdom outside the Bible, amen? There's a little wisdom here and there sprinkled throughout the earth. God has a common grace that he's given to human beings. We can reason, we can understand, we can even come up with some pretty good things. And one of the things that Sun Tzu said is, if you know the enemy and you know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know the enemy and yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. That's if you know yourself but not the enemy. Why? Because you don't know what the enemy will do after you defeat them in X, Y, or Z battle, what they will do to regroup and come back, right? You need to know your enemy well, through and through. And if you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. And unfortunately for a lot of people, this is actually their reality in the day-to-day. They don't know the enemy. They don't know themselves. They don't, they're not familiar with what triggers them and, and tempts them and pushes them into areas of uh, compromise and areas where they really shouldn't be behaving or acting or speaking or thinking in certain ways and doing certain things because those things pull their eyes off of the Lord Jesus. It pulls their eyes off of following after God. It distracts them and they don't know themselves well enough to figure that out ahead of time, and they also don't know the enemy well enough to know that he uses the same things over and over and over again in their lives to trip them up and to slow them down and to impede their progress and to get them distracted and unfocused on God. And so this part one is a little bit about that today. We're going to get to know our enemy a little bit. And... uh, If you were to ask a Christian, I'll ask you guys, what is the reason for all of the unrest, turmoil, and evil that we have in the world? What would you respond with? Okay, fear, sin, okay. What's the reason behind the reason for those two things, fear and sin? The devil. All right. The devil. And, of course, when we think about the starting point for all of this, keyword starting point, what event do we think of? The fall. Right. The fall. Genesis 3. The big, the great thud in Eden. Right? Everything was marching along swimmingly, and then the snare drum player tripped, And he fell into the cymbal guy who fell into the kick drum guy or the standing bass drum guy, and the whole thing fell apart. They all went down. You ever seen a, 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 you ever seen like a, um, a marching band all sort of go down like dominoes? There's videos of this. One guy trips and, right? And it's just a great big thud now. There's no music happening. No one's marching anywhere. And they're all sort of wondering what happened. Well, this is, this is the fall. This is Genesis 3. And the problem is that Christians have this sort of narrow view that the reason for all of the unrest, turmoil, and evil that we have in the world is the fall. And they're partially right. You're partially right. You would get like a C plus or a B minus on that test, all right? If you were to ask, though, an ancient Israelite the same question, 
an ancient Israelite, excuse me, sir, and he speaks to you in Hebrew, and so you have to get your Hebrew translator out. You go to translate.google.com, and you go, can you speak into this? And he says, you ask, what's the reason for all of this unrest, turmoil, and evil in the world? He would say, actually, that there are three reasons. The fall in Genesis 3 is the big one. That's the big E on the I chart. But the second one is the sin of the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6. Okay? Genesis chapter 6. What's in Genesis chapter 6? What's there that we all know? What story? The flood. Right. Rhymes with thud. The great thud is in 3. great flood is in 6. And I'm all out of rhyming now. Uh, And then the third one would be the Tower of Babel incident in Genesis 11. These are all enormously important to understand the narrative, what's going on in the Bible, all right? They're huge, huge uh, cultural and sociological and spiritual issues happening in these three stories. And part of the way that I'm doing this series, at least the setup to this series, is I want you to think like them. When we go through these scriptures and we go through back through the whole uh, sort of biblical narrative and the struggle that exists in the spiritual realm and the struggles that exist because of the struggle in the spiritual realm, the struggles that exist in the earthly and material realm, I really want these ideas to be in your head. They're extremely, extremely important. You would, at first glance, not realize uh, how much of your Bible is influenced by the events in Genesis chapter 6. You definitely would see Genesis 3 there, but at first glance, you don't see Genesis 6, and you don't see Genesis 11, because we don't understand these things typically the way that an ancient Israelite would. Why? Because we aren't ancient Israelites. We're, you know, post-Greek thought, you know, Aristotle had his influence on us, and, uh, and honestly, a lot of Christians have just simply um, irrationalized or deconstructed the entire supernatural nature of the Bible. They've just sort of said, oh, the scriptures can all be explained. You can understand everything. It all makes sense. And there's a lot of stuff in the Bible that is beyond that. A lot of stuff in the Bible that's beyond that. It's a supernatural book. And today, we're going to go through at least the first of these three, talking about the fall in Genesis 3 and, uh, and how they've contributed to our current world. In part two, we'll tackle Genesis 6, the sin of the sons of God, and Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, next week. And the fall of Adam and Eve is the most notorious of these stories, right? Everybody is familiar with this. And so if you have your Bible with you, would you open to Genesis 3? If you have a Bible on your phone or something like that, just go to Genesis 3. And uh, we'll pray briefly and we'll get started here. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come to your word, to have it understand us, to have it explain us, to have it... um, to have it open up our hearts and our minds and expose us. Lord, would you do that today? Would you help us to understand our enemy and uh, what we we are really waging war against in in this world? Lord, you don't need us to wage war on your behalf, but you have chosen us to do so. And so, Lord, we say yes and amen. We agree with you, and we agree with the reason that Jesus came to save us and to pull us back into your fold, back into your family. 
We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. We start in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. When you see the capital L-O-R-D, by the way, in your Bible, that is the name for God, the Hebrew name for God in the Old Testament. It's the, it's the, the technical term that theologians talk about is the tetragrammaton. Everyone say tetragrammaton, tetragrammaton. It's the Yahweh name. It's the Y-H-W-H. Okay, that's what that capitalized, all capital Lord means in the English Bible here. And the serpent said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. All right. Now, the serpent appears in the garden to Eve. He tempts her. And as the New Testament says, um, he deceives Eve into eating of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, the one that God expressly said, any tree, anyone, eat whatever you want, just not that one, right? And um, a lot of people think that if our, if our, our, our rules were simpler, we would do better, right, if we just had less rules. There was only one rule, people. Just one, right? And I'm sure the fruit from the other trees was good too, right? God looked at everything and said, ah, behold, it is good. Looks good to me, right? Everything God put in that garden was good. And what I want to do is just give you some insight into the sort of the inside baseball that's going on here in the text. And um, a lot of people will get focused in on, you know, Eve misquotes God, so she was already sort of, sort of straying from that perfect idea of what the truth is, and that's certainly there in, in the text. Um, a lot of people will focus on the fact that the serpent says that after you eat this, God knows that then you'll be like him, all right? But here's the problem, God, they were already like God, right? God in Genesis chapter 1, we actually have to go there in order to, to sort of set this up properly. God makes man like him, right? In his image and in his likeness. So Adam and Eve were already in God's image. They were already like God. And, uh, and so there's a couple of things that are, being, uh, that are being played on here in the text by the serpent and the serpent is using them to deceive Eve. You ever have someone use your words against you to throw you off, right? Some like verbal jujitsu, right? And then, you, and then you're like damned by your own words, right? You're like, well, I didn't mean, wait, I didn't, that's not really what I meant, you know? But that happens to us, right? Some, some person will do that to you because they're, they're angry at you or they, they don't like you very much or they're, just, they're really trying to catch you in something. We actually have to go back to Genesis 1 in order to, to set the rest of this up. The human beings were made in the image of God to bear his image on the earth. That's literally why he created them. And if you recall last week, I said that God has another family, 
Everyone remember last week, if you were here last week, I talked about how God has two families. One is spiritual and one is earthly, right? We're spiritual too, but just follow the, follow the, uh, the, the simple terms here that I'm using. So God had a, a family that existed prior to his earthly family, okay? And it's actually these guys that God is talking to in Genesis 1.26. He turns to this group of beings and he says, let us, right, more than one, make mankind in our image, right? And, uh, uh, and I contend that it's actually these beings called the sons of God that are sort of involved in that initial moment. We actually see them in Job 38 when God makes the heavens and the earth. He says, were you there when I formed the foundations of the earth, when all of the stars in the heavens sang and all of the sons of God shouted for joy? So these beings, these sons of God beings, they've been around for a long time. All right? they're, they're not timeless the way that God is, but they are immortal. They don't, they don't sort of get old and die. Okay, they're immortal in that way. And in Genesis 1.26, God says, hey, I've got another idea. So I created you guys in my image to be sons of God. What I'm going to do is I'm going to create a material version of the son of God. And I'm going to make these, these humans in my image as well. So now I'll have this supernatural spiritual family. And I'll have this earthly family. And what do you all think about that? And we actually don't get a response from these beings that God is talking to. We don't see the response there, but you can imagine that it was probably mixed. Do you know that the sons of God, this group of people or group of beings that are in heaven with God, they don't, they're not automatons. They're not robots. Do you know that? They have a conscience and a will, just like you and I do. Otherwise, we can't get to Genesis 3 if they don't. Genesis 3 is predicated upon the fact that these beings have choices that they can make. And last week, I even gave you an example of how God involves them in his decision-making process. Right? Remember 1 Kings 22? It's time for Ahab to die. God says, it's time for Ahab to die. I need someone to go down and lie to him. This is God talking to his divine counsel beings here, these sons of God. And one of them volunteers to go and says, go for it. God says, go for it. You will, and he will die. That's really how the story goes. That's the Cliff Notes version, obviously. So God has these two groups of beings that he created, these spirit beings and the earthly beings, and the spirit beings have a portion of their population called the sons of God. So it's not that every spiritual being in that realm is one of the sons of God. There's a lot of different beings in that realm, but there's this, there's this group of beings that are literally made in God's image and likeness, and they are his image bearers in the divine realm as we are his image bearers in the earthly realm. And when God creates human beings, he is do, he's replicating what he did in that divine realm. And so now we have two sets of imagers, two categories, Categories of imagers, both heavenly and earthly. And one is to execute God's purposes in the spiritual realm, and the other is to execute God's purposes in the earthly realm. Now, the word translated serpent in Genesis 3, we're going to take a look at this today. 
Some of you are familiar with some of the uh, scholarship around this word. You're familiar with some of the different scholars and the names uh, of guys that have done a lot of work in this area trying to bring clarity in, uh, to this picture of what's happening in Genesis 3 and throughout the Old Testament. Um, I would recommend, if you haven't read any books by Michael Heiser, a lot of this will come from actually his ideas. And so I just want to be clear with you, I didn't make this up myself. A lot of this stuff is peer-reviewed scholarship, uh, and it comes through the funnel of a guy named Michael Heiser, who has sort of done a really good job of pulling all of the information together and making it accessible and readable and understandable for people like you and me. And the word translated serpent in Genesis 3 is a Hebrew word called nachash. Everyone say nachash. Nice. Good job. And what we have here, this is a very interesting word. In ancient Hebrew, they don't have vowels. Okay? So if you didn't know that, ancient Hebrew does not have any vowels in it. It just has consonants. So, you know, B, C, D, F, you know, no A and no E right? Only consonants, no vowels. And what they do is when they write their words out, they signify the vowel sounds, okay, so that you don't have garbly gook coming out of your mouth. You actually have a word coming out of your mouth. They signify that by making little symbols around the word, around the consonants themselves, to indicate where there are supposed to be vowel sounds in the word. And in this case, this is a very special word because the consonants, the root of this word, can mean three different things. It can mean a noun, a verb, and an adjective, and the three are not really connected to one another in any way. So if, you, if I did this, well, we have the word run, we have the word running, and we have the word runningly. No, I don't know. But you understand what it, like a noun, verb, and adjective that are all connected to one another? Conceptually, we have that in the English language. These, this word, the noun, verb, and adjective form of it are not connected to one another conceptually in any noticeable way. And in this case, here's how Nakash breaks out. The noun is serpent. Very simple, right? Okay, so we're all familiar with that word. That, the word serpent is in the text. It says it right there, Andy. Serpent. But here's the problem. The text doesn't say that a serpent came and talked to Eve, right, like some just random snake. It says, the serpent. And the word the in Hebrew is the word ha. So it's ha-nachash. And what that means is that it's signifying a proper name. It's a proper name, all right? It's not just that a serpent came and talked to Eve. It's a proper name. Somebody actually, somebody actually who bears that name in the text came and talked to Eve. Okay, And of course, you might be responding to me by saying, of course, we know this, Andy. The verb is deceiver, diviner. We know that the serpent came in and deceived Eve with divine wisdom, right? Divine wisdom. If you eat, then you'll be like God. That's divine wisdom. It's twisted and perverted wisdom, but it's, it's trying to give her divine information. But he, what about this adjective, shining one? That's a little strange. That's a little bit strange. And we need to focus on that if we're going to actually understand what is happening in this text. And it's interesting that the author of Genesis 3 chose to use this term to refer to this being. 
If you've always understood this text as talking about a serpent, then that's great. That's fine. On its face, that's what's happening here. Something shows up in the garden, and it has the appearance of a serpent. It's serpentine, all right? Everyone familiar with that belt in your, in your car that everyone hates to replace, the serpentine belt? Yeah, it's called that because it goes like this around all the pulleys, and it has lots of S-curves in it and looks like a serpent, right? But this figure shows up, and he is serpentine, and there's no problem in this understanding at all. In fact, the New Testament, Paul actually says, hey, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, that your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. 2 Corinthians 11.3 says that. So Paul actually refers back to this event and calls this being the serpent as well. And so we get a New Testament witness to this. But the problem arises that is that when we see a serpent or snake and we think that it's just a serpent or snake, my wife justifies her fear of snakes with this passage. <laughs> Jokingly, tongue-in-cheek, she's like, it's in the book, right? You're supposed to be afraid of snakes. She doesn't understand people who play with snakes or own snakes or, 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 or pet snakes. Oh, isn't it so pretty? She goes, no, it's disgusting. It's gross. It's in the book, right? So it's a little joke with her. But it's important to ask, for example, why didn't Eve go running away from this being? Okay, just imagine you're in the woods and an animal comes up and starts talking to you. All right? We're not talking about Disney World people. This is the Bible, right? An animal, like a little chipmunk, right? Who's, who, who remembers Kronk from, uh, right? <laughs> He speaks fluent chipmunk. Oh, really? Oh, really? Yeah. She's got a wall there. You know, like he's, you know, he's conversing with this chippy, and uh, he's not bothered by it. But I can imagine that if it were one of us and it wasn't a Disney cartoon, all right, we would be a little bothered by a snake, right? Saying, you know, however snakes talk, like in Harry Potter or something like that, right? They're, 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 they're the parcel tongue or something like that. We'd be bothered by this. You might go running in the opposite direction, but Eve doesn't. What would that indicate to you? This is a normative experience. That should indicate to you that this is not a snake. Like, well, we already know that because God did all of this talking about how he's going to make him, you know, crawl on the ground and stuff like that. So we, we know it was like more of a lizard that had legs. No, no, stop, stop, stop. Stop trying to do biology right now, right? Stop trying to do biology. What happens here is we should say, we should read something to the effect of, excuse me, why are you talking to me? Or, excuse me, the snakes don't talk. Shut up, you know, in the name of Jesus, or something like that. There should be some sort of response from Eve other than a conversation. Well, here's what got, you know, they're having this matter-of-fact conversation. There's no response that would indicate that Eve is not familiar with this kind of interaction. And I'm convinced that the reason is because Eve was used to having these kind of interactions with these kinds of creatures. Now, 
We're going to get into something here that is not always clear in your Bibles if you've read them very much. In your Bibles, you have this thing I talked about last week called the divine council. Remember? Divine council. What they would do is they would meet with God. There's multiple depictions of this in your Old Testament. Sometimes God is sitting down and they're standing around him. Sometimes God is sitting down and several of them are sitting down on thrones along with God. And they're conversing with God and God is conversing with them. Sometimes everybody is in court sitting down and God is standing over them. Right? God, like in Psalm 82, when he appears in the midst of the council, God takes his seat and then he judges the divine council because they've been corrupt. And what people don't understand about the Garden of Eden is that the Garden of Eden, symbolically in the Old Testament, you think it was just a physical garden, it was a physical place, and it was lush, and it had plants, and they could eat things. But what most people don't understand about the Garden of Eden is that it is a type of the temple of God, the meeting place of God, the holy place of God. The Garden of Eden is a shadow and a symbol and a metaphor that predates the physical temple. And what the people were assigned to do, God said, hey, go forth, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Essentially, the subdue it terminology is make it like Eden. Take this temple, right? Who's the temple of God now? Us, yes. Take this temple and proliferate it on the earth so that I no longer am just meeting here with you and with my spiritual sons of God and with my earthly sons of God in this place, but my presence is able to go out into all the world and meet everywhere and meet with everyone and every place. That's what God is trying to get human beings to do, and they fail miserably. And so what Eve would be used to is she would be used to seeing these divine creatures, these sons of God-type creatures, these shining creatures meeting with God in the garden. In fact, the Old Testament also calls the, the Eden the, the holy mountain of God. In the book of Ezekiel, it calls Eden the holy mountain of God. And they would meet on the mountain, and the garden was in the east, it says. And the, God would meet with his heavenly host on the mountain and discuss what was happening. This is far out. You should be like, whoa. Because when I first learned this, I was like, whoa. <laughs> so Eden had this multifunctionality to it that a lot of Christians just aren't aware of. And so Eve is sitting here going, oh, it's one of those guys. It's one of those shining guys. I know those shining guys. Those are the guys that meet with God up on the mountain. Sometimes God would come down in the cool of the day and walk with Adam. And then he would go back up to his mountain when he was finished talking with Adam. These are all things that happened in the garden that, that we don't put together because we don't read the Bible in one, like sort of one narrative. We read all of it all broken up and we read a little bit here every day and we read a little bit Old Testament, a little bit New Testament, a little bit of the wisdom literature. And we don't put it all together and we need help with that sometimes. And the word nachash here is intentionally being used by the author to communicate all three of these things. All three. You ever heard of a double entendre? Right? 
This is a triple entendre, right? It's one word communicating three realities all at the same time. And we can readily see how the second meaning, deceiver or diviner, that makes a lot of sense. After all, the, the, the serpent comes and he dispenses some special knowledge to Eve. But what about this shining stuff? How does that actually make sense? And for this answer, we have to go to somewhere else in the Bible. We actually have to go to a couple of different texts. The first is Isaiah chapter 6. And we see this image, this imagery, this vision from Isaiah. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim. That's an interesting word. It's an interesting creature. And each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew, and one called to the other, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And most people know that the seraphim are what? Yeah, they're angels, right? They're special angels. They're weird-looking angels, but they're angels. We know that. And what seraphim are are angelic throne guardians that surround the throne of God and they guard the purity and holiness of God. Now, does God need protection? Yeah, that's a layup answer, right? No, he doesn't need protection. But God loves to communicate through symbolism and he loves to employ other creatures and things that he has made in this process of communicating his glory and his holiness to the world. And so he created the seraphim to do just that. You guys are going to stick around my throne and protect this area from anything impure. That's your job. And that's all they do. That's all they do. And they're terrifying. They're terrifying in some of their descriptions in in the Old Testament. But what most people don't know about seraphim is that the root word seraph has a couple of interesting meanings. And this is where we connect things. Seraph can be translated serpent. So there's nachash and there's seraph. And depending on the cultural context and background of the author, they would use one or the other. Seraph, nachash. Seraph, nachash. You know what they also both mean is shining one. Shining one. One who is luminous. They both mean that. Now, seraph doesn't also mean diviner or deceiver, and that's why the Old Testament Genesis writer chose to use the word nachash instead, because he needed that element in there, that this was a deceptive shining one. But they both mean shining one, and they both mean serpent. And in fact, the seraph means burning one, if you want to get right down to it. They're on fire, right? So if someone says, hey, he was on fire for God, she was on fire for God, they're referring back to this incident right here, where Isaiah looks and he sees these angelic beings with six wings burning for God's holiness. Burning. And the connecting concepts of a serpentine or snake-like creature that is shining or, or is illuminated in some way that deceives Eve in the garden, they're unmistakable here in Isaiah chapter 6. Both writers are trying to communicate something unique about these beings. They're both connected to the divine. Their origin is from the divine or the supernatural world, and they both come from a place of having a job function in God's economy. Now we go to 
Ezekiel chapter 28. And Ezekiel chapter 20 is an interesting chapter where he's talking about the king of Tyre, this strange, this strange dude that lacks definition in the Bible or outside the Bible. There's all kinds of speculation about whether or not this was an actual person and he's being used as a symbol or metaphor here, or whether the biblical writer actually made up a character in order to create this prophetic narrative happening in Ezekiel 28. And in the second half of Ezekiel 28, where we're starting, is where God is lamenting over the king of Tyre. He's lamenting. He's sorry about something. He's grieved in his heart over something. And he says, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the signet of perfection. You were full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in where? Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was for your covering, sardius and topaz and diamond and beryl and onyx and jasper and sapphire and emerald and carbuncle. I got you some carbuncle for Christmas, dear. Oh, thank you, I think. And crafted in gold were your settings and engravings. What do all of those things have in common with one another? They're shiny, right? Anyone ever see Moana, right? The crab, shiny, right? Jewel encrusted, right? That's what's going on here, shiny. He's shiny. You're shiny. You shine like sardius and topaz and diamond and beryl and onyx and jasper and all of it. And gold is around all of your engravings. And on the day that you were created, they were prepared essentially for you. You could put that in parentheses. You were an anointed guardian, what? Cherub. Seraphim and cherubim are both angelic Beings that guard God's throne. They're interchangeable depending on the context of the book that you're reading. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in Eden. Remember, this is in Eden. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in all of your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. Again, we see the connecting points from this character to the character that we saw in the garden, deceiving Eve. The description of being covered with jewels and stones connects to the idea of sparkling or shining. And this being cannot be a normal human because he was where? In Eden. In Eden. And I don't know about you, but there's no depiction of Adam wearing all of that stuff anywhere. In fact, God made a, a skin for him. From a, he killed an animal and put some skins on him so he wouldn't be naked. But other than that, there's no clothing that Adam is ever listed as wearing. This cannot be about Adam being in, being in Eden. God says this being was in Eden. And then that this being was anointed as a guardian cherub. Cherubim and seraphim, they're shining angelic creatures that are given particular types of responsibility in the heavenly realm. They have many similarities in appearance and their function in different books of the Bible, but the point is this being was found, had unrighteousness found in him. And this text says that this being grew proud, if we were to go on. It would say that he grew proud. And what we have is the following scenario. All right, You want to know why the enemy hates you so much? 
This is why. This is why you get attacked. This is why there is spiritual battle. This is why you have to be ready for the war. This being grew proud. And he decided two things. The first, why should these earthly beings be imagers on the same par as me? They're lower than me. You ever look down your nose at somebody? I know I have. I have to repent for it. Like, it's a thing, right? You look down your nose at somebody. Or you ever look at someone who got the promotion instead of you, right? They got the promotion instead of you, and you grow proud, and you, you think, why should they get the special treatment? Why should they get the special relationship with boss or, the, or God, if you will, in this case? After all, I am a shining guardian cherub for Pete's sake. Peter didn't, wasn't alive yet, but hey, works. For Pete's sake, I am above them. They are mortal. I am immortal. They are fleshly. I am spiritual. I've been around since the beginning. I was there when the earth's foundations were laid. And God is going to make them imagers, putting them on the same level as me? No way. I'm not having it. And so he attacks. And his second reason, rebellion against God. You know what? I don't like the way God's doing this. I think I should be king. I will rise above the stars. I will take my throne in heaven. I will be God. And what does Eve do? What does Eve do? Instead of responding... You're wrong. You're wrong, serpent. You're wrong, Satan. You're wrong. I don't care where you come from. You're wrong. Instead of responding that way, which is the way that we should always respond when someone or something comes up against the knowledge of God that we know is true. God is good. God is righteous. God is holy. God is just. God is gracious. He is merciful. He is powerful. All of these things, anytime anything comes up against the knowledge that we have of who God is, what he is about, what his character is like, we should say, you're wrong. You're wrong about him. And because you're wrong about him, you're wrong about me. I already am like him. I was made in his image and likeness. He formed me with his own hands. He knit me together, as the scriptures say, in my mother's womb, hidden away in the inmost parts. He formed me. He knew me before I was anything. Anytime the enemy comes against us, which is all the time, we're going to land this plane right now. But I want to invite you to have a different view of what the enemy is doing in your life right now. Now, a lot of people run around saying, I'm under attack, I'm under attack, and they run around like the house is on fire, right? That people do this, okay? 
No, probably, as I said last week, you're probably reaping the benefit of some of your own poor choices, and you should deal with that, and you should confront that. You should repent of that. You should accept grace for that. You should get discipled in that. You should let someone come along and help you, right? But the fact of the matter is he attacks. And right now, right now, he's attacking some of you right now. What we want to do is we want to stand together. Let's stand. Let's stand. You know, you can take back your freedom from the enemy by exercising the authority that God has restored to you in Christ Jesus. The enemy has no power over you if you are in Christ. And the major lie that he tells you day in and day out is that he has control over you. You are his. He can do what he wants. And this is where the rubber meets the road for us. We should not accept it as normal. We should accept God's truth as normal and everything else as lies. God's truth is normal. He sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for my sin. God's truth is normal. He is remaking me into an image of Jesus Christ. God's truth is normal. Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning at the right hand of God, and I am in his kingdom now. God's truth is normal. So God, we want to come before your truth today. We want to accept your truth and build on your truth and have your truth be the foundation of our lives. Standing on your truth that we might be in your presence. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you come now and help us as we struggle against the enemy in this world, in this life, to choose to believe the unbelievable truth that you love us? that you've died for us, that you've risen, that we might rise with you. Hey there, Pastor Andy here again. I want to thank you for checking in with Manchester Vineyard by listening to this message today. We hope and pray that it has been a blessing to you and that it has served to point you in the direction of following Jesus wherever he may lead you. As always, if you would like to reach out to us, feel free to drop us a line at contact at manchestervineyard.com. And if you'd like to tell us about what you believe God is doing in your life, email us at amen at manchestervineyard.com. We hope to see you on an upcoming Sunday to give us an opportunity to serve you and your family. God bless you.